Type 1 on 1 is kindly co-sponsored by Ipsamed My Life Diabetes Care. Their My Life Ipso pump is super small, super light, it looks beautiful and focuses on keeping things simple with the help of the My Life app. Find out more on the My Life Diabetes Care website. Hi everyone and welcome to Type 1 on 1, a podcast that delves into the obscure, complex and challenging world of life with type 1 diabetes. I'm Jen Greaves and each week with the help of some brilliant guests I'll be showing that there is no normal when it comes to handling this whopper of a chronic condition because we're all pretty much figuring out the messiness of day-to-day life with diabetes as we go and most of all even though it doesn't always feel like it we are absolutely not alone. My guest this week is Nina Wadia. Nina is an actor best known for her roles in EastEnders, Open All Hours, Goodness Gracious Me and Death in Paradise. She's also a mum of two and was plunged into the world of type 1 diabetes when her son Aidan was diagnosed in 2017 at the age of 10. Nina, welcome and thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Hello. I really think so many listeners will connect with your story. Um, So I think the best thing is to get straight into it. Um, I usually start by asking you to talk to me a little bit about the weeks leading up to Aidan's diagnosis and what you experienced. Sure. Um, Well, uh, a few months before uh, September 2nd, 2017, which I don't think people forget the date they were diagnosed with anything. So um, a few months prior to that, uh, Aiden had come home from school uh, with what was diagnosed as a virus, and he had been throwing up endlessly uh, to the point where it was literally every other day for about six weeks, and he lost uh, a lot of weight. And we were concerned, obviously, because you know other kids had had viruses, but they'd stopped throwing up after three days, whereas our son six weeks later was still throwing up, and we couldn't figure out what was going on. Uh, we ended up even taking him to Great Ormond Street and they just kept saying to us, um, it's a virus, it's a virus. At the time, you know, nobody thought anything else. And to this day, we don't know if that's where it started or not. But for me, uh, my gut feeling as a mum was that something actually happened in those weeks. Um, cut forward to a few months uh, later, we um, decided to go on holiday and it was one of our kind of nicer holidays, which we take every about three or four years. And we decided to go to Thailand. Um, And the holiday started off very well. But I did notice that Aiden was eating a lot, um, almost sort of five times a day. But, you know, strangely, when he has growth spurts, that's kind of a pattern anyway for boys that age. So I put it down to that. Um, The other thing I noticed was that... um, he was drinking a lot of water, but again, there was an excuse because it was 40 degree heat. And we thought, well, we're drinking a lot of water, so <laughs> I don't know what that's about. Um, and then finally, the the only difference was that no matter how much water we drank or how much we ate because we were on holiday, we didn't wake up in the middle of the night to pee, whereas he did. Um, and I remember ringing my mother-in-law, who is in Canada, um, and she said to me, oh, don't worry about that. She says, you know, he's little, he's got a small bladder, <laughs> you know, he's he's only 10. That's probably why he wakes up is what she said. So there seemed to be an excuse for every bit of behavior. Um, and at that point I thought, okay, well, you know, he's a growing boy, he's going through something we don't know. 
but he he was very skinny. And again, the excuse my mother-in-law had was that, you know, my husband in that age was very, very skinny. So, and he kept his activity level. This is the weird thing, you know, we were zip lining and sort of, you know, jumping of mountains, hang gliding and things. And he did every activity, even though he looked skinnier than he normally does to me. But because he just carried on, I thought, okay, I shouldn't be too concerned. He seems pretty happy I guess when you don't know what you're looking for it just wouldn't click and that will come to the work you do now to raise awareness of these symptoms but absolutely you're right there's so many ways to explain away these things especially in circumstances that aren't normal for you being on holiday being in a hot country you know things like that Mm -hmm. that's definitely and that's kind of what threw me but um the one thing that didn't change was you know, my instinct. And I, I would say this to other mums out there, you know, we we as women, we have very, very good instincts. And a bit of advice that my mum had given me before she'd passed away was, you know, always trust these, just go with them. If you feel something's not right, something's not right. So at this point now, towards the end of the holiday, we were going to stop off in India before we got back to the UK from Thailand to show my kids where I grew up. and. Uh, we're on the flight, and um, I got to tell you, it was possibly the most horrific flight of my life. Um, mostly because, of course, this is now when he started to feel ill again, and I thought, oh no, this virus is back. And we were on the flight, and you know, what? I'm, if I'm going to be candid, I may as well tell you this because, it, as a mum, I think people will understand. It's one of those horrific things where your child is not well, so of course you are worried and you go into this sort of mode of okay I just got to sort this out and we were on a flight where the the toilets are very very narrow and normally if either of my children are going to throw up it's my husband who I'll beg to take care of it because I'm I'm the type of person who retches when other people retch so um but he couldn't fit in the loo with my son and my son was very ill and he said Mum, mum, you know, it's sort of, it's coming out every which way. So I had to go into the toilets with him. And we were coming down to land in India. So there I was, I had an air hostess banging on the door saying, we're going to land, you need to get out of the toilet. (laughs) My poor son was in such a state. And, you know, it just everything was happening. And he was throwing up. So I was throwing up in the sink. And it was 25 minutes of pure hell and I mean absolute hell and uh, I I let one point when she knocked on the door again to say you've got to get your seatbelt on I literally opened the door and chucked a bag of sick in her face and just said it's your choice it's either coming out here or it's going to come out all over all the passengers your choice I mean being that poorly at the best of times sounds absolutely horrendous but I do think there are a few things worse than being poorly on a plane oh yeah in a very confined space and you know it was just awful it was just awful and I was crying he was crying and my you know my poor daughter and my husband sort of wondering where we were and what was going on so anyway we land and you know he's just he's so weak that my husband literally has to carry him off the plane we get to the hotel in India and I said to my husband went I want to cut this trip short. I just want to get him home. Something is not right. I just want to get him home somewhere safe. That's it. So next day, we literally cut the trip short. 
and got on the next flight back home. Again, another horrific flight home. Uh, he just, this whole time, just throwing up, throwing up. Now, again, had we known what this was, we wouldn't have done all the stupid things that we did, which is, you know, the only thing my son kind of would really request or ask for was orange juice. He loves orange juice. But of course, what we didn't know is, you know, his ketones were through the roof. And the stupidest thing you can do is give him sugar. <laughs> but because we didn't know what was going on, and it's the only thing that, you know, he would sort of ask for or even want. And he hadn't eaten now for coming up to three days, practically, because every every time he put anything in his mouth, it would just come back out. Um, you know, we, we had this horrible flight home and we finally get home. And there was something about being home that he suddenly relaxed and and then he... He had rest and he finally, finally had a good night's sleep. And when I say good night's sleep, I'm talking half a day. Um, and I had work. I literally got work sort of the following day. I was, in fact, I took over from uh, Matthew Wright. I did the right stuff. I hosted it for a week while he was away. So I, and, and I was filming um, Trolleyed in Bristol. So I was doing this very weird thing where I was in Bristol in the day and then, you know, doing the right stuff in uh, at the time in Bayswater and I had to be away from home for that week and I knew my husband was home and you know my son seemed to kind of be recovering a little bit because he was glad to be home so he relaxed but when I came back from my six days away immediately after our, our, our holiday I came home and I looked at my son and I said to my husband he looks even thinner now and my husband said, no, 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 he's not throwing up or anything. He seems okay. He's not himself, but he seems okay. And I went, no, that is it. I've had it. And I just, I don't know what happened to me, but that Saturday morning, I just said to him, put him in the car. We're taking him. We're just going. We're just going. And we we got in the car. And then the weirdest thing happened. As we approached St. Mary's in Paddington, my son basically collapsed in the back of the car his eyes rolled into the back of his head and he he'd gone into um a, and I can never say this word so forgive me ketoacidosis or something like that it, it, he, yeah. went into, he had an attack um DKA we yeah. can say that it's much easier you can yes. <laughs> how um, frightening oh my goodness he just that was it pretty much so again we got to a point where we were outside the hospital and I remember like I stopped literally where ambulances are meant to stop my husband goes into the back of the car, picks him up again. He's completely unconscious and rushes him, you know, to wherever. My daughter stays with me in the car because I am absolutely panicked. Um, and I just think the worst. And I'm looking around. It's, you know, there's no parking. Everything's double yellow. And I think I don't care. And I literally just parked. I had to just park the car because I didn't know what else to do. To the point where I even saw a parking meter guy coming towards me. And I just went don't care. My son's dying, I think. And I just ran in, um, went up to, you know, where he'd been taken in. And um, the, there was a junior doctor and there was a nurse. And I remember that the junior doctor was, I'm sorry to say, a little bit abrupt. Um, and the nurse was lovely. And she took one look at him and she said, he's so thin. And I said, I know, I know. And I just burst into tears. And she took one prick of his finger and she came up to me and she said, did you not know? And I looked at her and I said, did I know, not know what? 
at which point the junior doctor walks in and she said, did you not know he's type one? And I literally said, type one what? What are you talking about? Why is everyone asking me like I know something that I don't know? What are you all talking about? Because diabetes was not something that, you know, it was in our world at the time. You know, so I, I've not had conversations about diabetes, type one, type two or anything. So it was very, very new to me. And my knees gave way. Um, and, whew, sorry, it's just brought back a bunch of memories for me. And I, I literally just fell to my knees and I thought, what's going on? And uh, my husband, actually, I remember at the time, said, we'd like to speak to a consultant, please. And I think he said that because he felt that the manner of the junior doctor wasn't quite appropriate. And um, a lovely doctor called Dr. Wasuf turned up, um, uh, who a Middle Eastern doctor basically came up to us. And he said, he, sat, he took myself and my husband to one side. Um, my son had already been put on a drip, I think, with insulin to just, you know, bring him down from wherever he was. Uh, my daughter instinctively knew something very bad was happening. And he sat down and he, the first thing this lovely man said was, what I'm about to tell you, he says, it's going to change your life. He said, but I can promise you in six months time, you will look back at this moment and think, I'm going to be okay. Why did I react so big? It's going to be okay. He says, because the one thing about this condition he said people pray for this condition if they want, you know, if there's an autoimmune disease coming their way because it's manageable. So he said, yes, it's horrible, but it's manageable. And I want you to take comfort in that word. Were you able to take comfort at that point with so much going on and, and that trauma of that experience? I'm so sorry you went through that. Oh, yeah. No, it's it, it's it's one of the reasons I, I actually did want to do something about type 1, especially when it comes to you know, type one for children, um, because I don't want other parents to go through what we went through, because it's hard enough as a parent, you know, just just having a general worry about your child. But to have a worry where your child almost dies because of lack of information is unforgivable and unacceptable. And then to be in a situation where people don't know how to give you that news, or they don't know how to, you know, uh, to help you to just take it in in a normal way but to answer your question I yes that word hearing hearing this gentleman speak to me actually gave me some semblance of comfort in that moment because at that moment genuinely I was destroyed and if I'm really honest uh, in the following week I wanted to run as far away as I could from my family because I I thought I'd done something wrong I thought I'd given him the wrong foods. I thought I'd brought him up wrong. I'd, I just, I just felt like, like I needed to have known this. And why, as a mother, did I not know this? And you know, how did, how could, why? I could have stopped him being sick. You know, I could have stopped the throwing up for those few months. I could have stopped him just feeling so rotten. And I didn't do my job as a mother. That's how I felt. The guilt level was through the roof. <laughs> I can imagine there's a lot of parents who can absolutely relate to your story. And I was eight years old and so much of what oh, you no. said kind of clicks in to that period leading up to the diagnosis. Yeah. 
I would count myself very fortunate that something so horrific didn't happen, but it was exactly the same stuff. I was out shopping with my mum for Mm -hmm. birthday presents because my birthday was coming up. And I just remember we had to leave the changing room because I needed the toilet so desperately. And she was like, you should have gone before we came out. And then I needed to go to the shop to get drinks. And the drinks we chose were sugary drinks because we didn't know. So it's all the same stuff. And um, thank you for telling that so candidly. How did you start to come back from that week after where you wanted to run away? How did you begin to process? There were two or three things that happened. So on the on day one, so they admit him into the hospital. And the minute he had the insulin put into him and the minute they managed to get rid of the ketones, which took, I think, three days. Um, but in, the immediate relief also had happened, you know, the immediate relief of just getting the insulin in his blood sugar slowly coming down he was almost himself although still very thin he was almost himself again in his mind in a you know in 24 hours and sort of seeing him the next day because my husband stayed with him and I went home with my daughter and we basically hugged and cried if I'm honest the whole night because it was just you know computing what was happening and then the next day when I went in and saw him and he was just Mom, how are you? You know, he was just back. And I thought, gosh, if if I'd known that's what he needed was just insulin, geez, <laughs> you know. And then he did this thing where he's going, okay, mom, so I have to learn how to work out, you know, like what I can give, you know. And he was giving me all these formulas. He'd already started to learn it and, com- like, you know, just just these numbers were flying around, and I didn't even know what the numbers meant because I hadn't been there for the morning conversation that my husband had been there for with the consultant. So they were starting to explain that to me, and then I remember the day after that when my son went, "Can I have McDonald's?" And I, the consultant went, "Sure, you can eat what you like. You know, just take the insulin for the the right amount of carbs." And I went, "Okay," and um, the nurse was trying to work. The numbers out and my son turns to me this is day two and goes can I inject myself because mum mum she takes so long to work out the numbers can I just inject myself oh, wow. and I remember going uh I don't know <laughs> where's that consultant can I ask him and we spoke to him and he went look if he feels confident to do it and then we had this sort of comedy routine going on of him pinching his leg and getting the needle really close to the leg, going, I could do this, I could do this. And I'm going, uh, okay. And then he'd go, a few seconds would go by and he'd go, I can't do it, I can't do it, I can't do it. And we'd all laugh. And they'd go, no, no, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. And this went on about five times. And we were on the floor just howling because it was the most ridiculous situation where he wanted to inject himself, but he couldn't. And we're going, but that's okay because I can't imagine sticking a needle into my body at any point. That must have been such a relief to see his personality come back so quickly. Oh, that was that's what made it easier. That's what made it easier was him. He he just is that kind of kid who just goes, right. I, I need to deal with it, you know. And I don't know. I, I, I forgive me if I'm wrong, but you know, I don't know if it's a male female thing or not, or maybe it's just the personality of the child. But certainly with him, he was just one of these people who thought, you know, okay, if I can eat anything that I want to, you know, um, of course, within moderation, but if he can eat anything he wants to, then yeah, 
tell me what I need to do so I can do that. I mean, the the oddest thing, you know, again, he has a real love for orange juice. Like, I don't know where this comes from, but one of the things that made him cry on, you know, the first day of recovery was he thought type one meant he can never drink orange juice again. And I remember going, if that's your only fear and your only concern, we're okay. You know, like, like it, it hadn't really registered to him that this is a, a lifelong thing. In his mind, it was just... Okay, so I take this injection and I can eat again, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because all of a sudden, he got his appetite back. And so we had to come up with these little formulas, you know, and um, of, of just these little calculations. And I said to him, I said, if nothing else, I said, your maths is going to be through the roof now, you know. <laughs> and we just, we stayed positive. The, the one thing that happened is because he suddenly came back to life and was positive, we brought the positivity with us. And, you know, this happened on the Saturday, the 2nd of September. And then on the Thursday of that week is when he started year six of junior school. He said to us on the Monday, I am going to be back at school for my first day, right? And I thought, can he? Can he actually? I don't know. Again, we asked the consultant, he went, why not? He says, absolutely. If he's up for it, let's let's make that the goal. So we rang the school and we told them. And I remember his, a couple of his teachers just bursting into tears. I, I remember a couple of mums just bursting into tears, you know, when they found out. And I thought, gosh, this actually hits people very hard because they realize it is, it is for life. That's, that's the big thing that, that I think people, that, that hurts more than anything else is that it's not just a, you can have a cure for it and you'll get better. You know, it's just, it's, 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 you have to do it forever. Um, yeah. Um, and I think adults can perceive that and process that in a way that maybe a child wouldn't because he's dealing, this is certainly how I felt. Yeah. I was exactly the same. I didn't appreciate that my parents were learning all this at the same time as me. And, you know, you saw at that age, your parents know everything and they fix yeah. everything. And so I was looking to them like, Aiden was you know can I do this shall I do that and I didn't appreciate that they had no idea what the answer was at that point you know I was the same in that I was so caught up in what was going on that day and this new thing and okay I've got to do this today and yeah I didn't I didn't for a long time think about how this would be every day for the rest of my life yeah but it's so amazing that Aiden's got that outlook yeah and he he's he has that I think that's part of his personality which, you know, he's resilient. Um, has he been able to carry that through as time has gone on? You know, I mean, don't get me wrong. They're, they're, you know, since then and over the last two and a half years, you know, he has pockets of anger that are quite frightening. Um, and, you know, and they seem to happen every three months almost. You know, they are pockets of anger, the pockets of frustration. His personality has changed in that he has to deal with this now realizing, you know, sort of a year after the first years when it really hit him that, oh, this is not going away anytime soon. And so there's there's, there's several things that happened in, in that first week before he went back to school. The day before he went back, one of his friends, Adam, you know, his mom had said, look, Adam really wants to come and meet him. Can we come over? And I was a bit nervous at first, but I, th- I said, sure. And um, so Adam turns up at the door and, you know, up to this point, so five days have gone by and 
I've told very dear friends and, and my immediate family what had happened. And I just cried all the time. And then I, I heard this conversation between him and his friend, Adam. And it went like this. Doorbell rings. Adam comes in. Hey, Aiden. Hey, Adam. Uh, Adam says, so mum tells me you're sick now. And Aiden goes, yeah, I got T1D. And Adam says, oh, what's that? And he goes, uh, yeah, I've got to inject myself with something so I can eat. Oh, you want to play Xbox? Yeah, cool. That was the conversation. That's how much his life had changed in that moment. How did that make you feel hearing that? I, I loved it. I loved it because I just went, God, I wish I, wish I could have done that with my friend. I wish I could have rung my girlfriends and gone... Yeah, my son's got T1D. You want to go to a spa? <laughs> That's actually going to have done that, you know. But instead, my conversations were, you know, just horrific, and just other amazing women and men, you know, friends of mine who would go, "You're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. Just read up about it, learn about it, you know, do so much research." Because I'm like that anyway. I will research something to the nth degree if I'm interested in it, and um, so we did that. But what what did happen quite incredibly as well is that when when he sort of decided that he was going to deal with it this way, I took a leaf out of his book and went, okay, then I'm going to deal with it this way. You know, I'll I'll do it too, and it actually gave me a lot of strength because I thought, okay, right, and then and then something again, another incredible little kind of thing that happened was. Day one, we take him to school. And at the end of the day, I get approached by a, a lovely woman called Marisa Baker, um, who is a huge part of JDRF as well. And she um, is a lawyer. She has a daughter called Eloisa, uh, who has type one. And she's the year below my son at school. And she came up to me and she said, hello, Nina. And she looked at me and I thought, oh, she looks sort of familiar, but I don't know where I've seen her. And she said, you don't remember me, do you? And I said, no. She said, um, she said, about six years ago, she said, um, I was at a charity called Pop for Diabetes in Southampton. And she said, I'd written to you and said, would you please come down and give my daughter an award for being an absolute warrior, um, you know, for injecting herself? She was only maybe four at the time or something. And I said, oh, right. Um, and she said, and you did, you turned up. And I remember, oh, I said, yes, actually, I, I did go to a charity event in Southampton, you're right. And she said, you gave my daughter an award. And she said, um, and I've never forgotten that. And she said, so how can I help you? Oh, and I remember just going, wow, the world just works in the most amazing way. <laughs> that <laughs> you is know? a very strange universe yeah. aligning I don't know whatever you want to place on that but yeah. that would uh, that would really comfort me I think in yeah. that moment it did it absolutely did and I just thought <sighs> you know so I've now met someone who can answer every question that I have because the thing about consultants and you know when you go for your three monthly checkup is you don't feel like you can speak to them in the in-between times which to me was almost every day in the first few weeks and suddenly I had someone who said call me morning noon or night just pick up the phone any questions whatever you want just ask me 
And I remember looking at her child uh, who'd come running up to at the end of school. And I, you know, Eloise, of course, didn't remember me at all because, you know, she was very little as well. And, and I thought, okay. And I said, hi. And I looked at her and I saw this gadget on her arm. And I said, what's that? And she said, oh, it's a freestyle Libra. And I was like, oh, I don't, I don't know what that is. And she said, oh, that's nothing. She goes, look at this. And she shows me the other arm and it's an Omnipod. And I said, I don't know what that is either. And she said, right, we need to talk. <laughs> and she is the person who basically then guided me for the next however long. And one of the things she said to me quite early on is, look, the one thing you must know about the type one community, she said, we help everyone. And she goes, and you will help everyone. So she said, it's just, this is how it works. Whatever knowledge you have, you pass it on to the next person and the next person. And, you know, she said to me, she says, you helped without knowing you'd helped JDRF. She goes, I'm going to introduce you to them and you need to become an ambassador for them. And you need to do this and you need to do that. And it was literally like, you know, she just said, this is going to be your charity now. And she said, because this, this charity, she says, they do prevention, they do treatment, they do cure. And so my ears just pricked up straight away and I went, I'm going to find the cure. That's it. We're going to find the cure for this thing. And, you know, it gave me a focus. And strangely, that actually came in handy for both my daughter and my son a few months later. My daughter had a, a very bad incident when I think it hit her three months after my son was diagnosed that our lives have changed forever. And she had a massive breakdown. And, you know, I had to say these words to her, that the way forward is we find a cure. And for my son as well, you know, with the anger, anger, anger that was pouring out of him, there was one day where, you know, he turned to me and he went, you know, when I tried to comfort him, he said, what do you know? This is not happening to you. This is happening to me. And I said, I know that. He goes, no, you don't get it. You don't get it and you will never get it. And no one else will get it unless they have it. You don't know how hard it is. And he said, you keep saying everything's going to be okay. He says, no, it's not. You tell me one reason. He goes, you tell me one thing that's going to make me feel better because there's no cure. You tell me one thing. And I didn't have an answer for him because the one sentence that he said to me, which really, really upset everyone, was he said, I don't believe in God anymore. That's it. I just don't. He says, because God wouldn't give this to good people. So I don't believe. And I, my jaw dropped because I was like, okay. And he said, give me a reason to believe in God. Go on. Tell me why he did this to me. And I didn't have an answer. And I was very upset. I left him in his room because he asked me to leave. So I left him and I went crying to my husband. And my husband went, I have an answer for him. And we went back into his room and he says, okay, you asked me a question. He goes, I've got an answer for you. He said, I think God gave this to you because I think God wants you to be the warrior and find the cure for this. That's why. He says, God thinks that our family is strong enough to handle it. And so he's brought it to us. Now let's deal with it. So he goes, you don't cry about this. He goes, you know, we fight it. He goes, and we fight it so that nobody else has to suffer this. And that's the answer he gave me. 
Archetype One-on-One is kindly co-sponsored by Dexcom UK and Ireland. The continuous glucose monitoring system allows you to see what your blood glucose is doing with just a quick glance at your compatible smart device. Imagine that. As a Dexcom warrior, I can tell you that this discreet little wearable has been a game changer when it comes to freeing up my headspace of some of that diabetes stuff. Head to Dexcom.com for more info. How do you navigate Aidan, who's now 13, is that correct? Yes. Trying new things, getting on with his life and becoming an adolescent. How do you navigate letting him do that and also you kind of minding him or watching over him in terms of of his diabetes and and how that manifests itself alongside these things he wants to do? How do you handle that? It's difficult. I'll be honest, we failed a lot. I I feel like we failed him um, and I... You know, we've we've had <laughs> we've had I call them comedy letters from the NHS where they go, please could you ring in and you know if you'd like a psychiatric appointment, you know, and I ring up and they go, oh, we don't have anyone in that position. This happened for two years to the point where in the last phone call I said, why do you send me a letter saying would you like to book an appointment? And then when the when I ring in to book an appointment, you say you don't actually have anyone in that position. I said I don't understand. I said, because my son actually does need to speak to someone, as do we as a family. We do need to speak about this, you know, because it's you do need therapy to be able to to handle the anger and the upset that this brings. You know, on an everyday basis, yeah, you get on with it. But subconsciously, we have worries. I, I had horrific dreams. I still have horrific dreams, you know, sometimes in the night where something bad's happened, you know, to my son. And I just I wake up and sweat and, you know. In the first few months before we had the Dexcom, I, I didn't sleep at all because it was like having a, a baby again. You know, I, because I every two or three hours I'd wake up to check his blood sugar was okay because I heard or so read somewhere that you know you can hypo in your sleep. So it was just this horrible thing of where I feel like I've let him down because I, you know, we couldn't get these appointments, and then we, in fact, we went privately to a therapist and he spoke to this lovely lady, but. It didn't suit him. And he said to me, don't make me do that again. So it's this part is the hardest. It's the hardest thing about type one, I feel, is the mental, you know, capabilities, the mental ability to stay positive. And, you know, we don't want to be the kind of family where we are, you know, just constantly championing him and constantly doing this and doing that. So I we had to leave him to go through his process of that anger. And I think this lovely therapist had also said, you know, there is a grieving process. She she said to me that getting something like type one or getting any kind of long-term illness or, or a terminal illness, she said, the thing about the process of trying to deal with it, she says, is it's a grieving process that you go through first because you've lost your life as you knew it before. And that actually made a lot of sense to me as to where his anger was coming from, because the anger is coming from him grieving his life pre-type one. So what her suggestion was, and which is the thing that we do, is when he has these episodes of anger, is to let him have them, to let him say what he wants to say, to let him just, and, you know, let it all out, but don't say anything back. I think the mistake as parents that you know, I feel that we can sometimes make is because we just want to cuddle them and make it all better. 
if they say something, we go, yeah, I know, I know. And they go, no, you don't know. So the best thing to do is, you know, he might break a few things and he has around the house. He might break it. He might kick a football around. He might do whatever he needs to, to let it out. But Lenny does it is to just listen. Don't say anything. Just let him just let rip because that is therapy. That is letting him get all the angst out, you know, get all the frustration out because he is he is angry that this has happened to him. I'm angry it's happened to him. My family's angry it's happened to our family. And that's okay. It's okay to feel that way. Um, and I think it's it's healthy to let that happen. And we do, we have we have days where he'll literally just go, you want to go for a walk? And you go, okay. And he'll just say things that are quite upsetting and frustrating. And, and it's fine. You know, you just have to take it because you just go, yeah, it is happening to you. Yeah, I get it. I think it's incredible that you already have that grasp on the psychological impact of this condition because yeah. it's something I didn't recognize for maybe a decade because yeah. back in 1996 when I was diagnosed, there was no focus on this side of things. There wasn't no. access to psychologists and yeah. it hit me at a much later stage that yeah. I was quite tired of dealing with it all and yeah. I wasn't feeling great and I was tired of feeling, you know, sick of feeling sick essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And that realization that this is a hormonal condition it's absolutely affected by so much other than the insulin and the food yeah sleep yeah. stress friendships you know all these things that are going on yeah. um and that was like a light bulb for me and that is what made me start talking about my type one start writing start doing all of this stuff because yeah. you know it it, it was like 10 years stored up in me and, and it just all started coming out where I was like, I want to feel good, but I want to live my life. And that's the side that lets us down when it comes to the NHS. I think they don't recognize that having a condition like this also means that your mental health suffers greatly and they need to have that in place. It has to just be part of the service of if you're looking after someone type one, it's not just about your A1C number. You know, that's the least important thing as far as I'm concerned. It really is. It's if your mental health, if you're able to cope with it, then you will immediately look after yourself, which will immediately improve your A1C number. It, that's just how it should go. Honestly, the best bit of advice I can give to other parents is just shut up about it sometimes. Sometimes just let them, let the kids just deal with it the way they want to deal with it. Let them make the mistakes. It doesn't matter if he's, you know, if you have to go high for a couple of days, go high for a couple of days, but just, you know, the condition is relentless. So don't become relentless as well as the condition because then they get it twice. And that will impact the blood sugars even more anyway. So absolutely, it's self-perpetuating. You have to find ways where at some point you have to relinquish control, which is where then technology came in and technology with the I mean the Dexcom G6 and the Omnipod which is the combination he's on works for him and so and it's changed our lives it's changed our lives dramatically uh the Dexcom meant that I get sleep and it means that he just looks at his watch because his watch mirrors the stuff that's on there and it also means it I get you know the Dexcom share app on my watch which means that I can go, 
I don't have to ask him every hour, what's your number? I just look at my watch and go, oh, he's, he's you know, 10.2, whatever. I, I can see it, so I don't have to bother him. So technology has genuinely changed our lives. And I cannot stress how important it is that you fight with the NHS to get what it is that you want. Because it, it again, it helps with mental health, which then helps with your A1C. That is the formula. Now, I, I've got to tell you very honestly, as much as I, I've loved gadgets my whole life, I'm technologically very challenged. So, you know, it took a bit of, oh, I've got to get used to it. Nice to hate any new tech. And now I just believe the way forward until we find a cure is to get the best tech that's out there. And, you know, it can absolutely change your child's life. And kids respond really well to tech. And tech is what's given my son any kind of hope that life's going to be okay. Because had he not got it, I think he'd be in a very, very different place to where he is now. Uh, he'd be a lot more depressed, a lot more down uh, and just angry. And I think it's it's actually focused him um, to the point where he's kind of going, I might do computing and I might go into tech, mum, so I can find some better gadgets for type one. Wow. You know, so it, it's given him a focus. And since then as well, we've had friends who, you know, told us about friends they know whose kids have been diagnosed. Aiden's talked to them on the phone. We visit a couple of them. I talk to other mothers and talk them through how they're going to be okay. You know, they're going to be okay. It is, it's relentless, but it's manageable. And that's what I say to them. And I say to them, get the tech, get the tech, get the tech, because it changes your life. You know, the adjustment period's hard to get into the tech, but then once you're on it, you can have some semblance of life again. And that's important. Absolutely. Did you have to, I don't want to say fight, was there yeah. a, a sort of bit of back and forth before Aiden was able to access that technology? Oh, it was a fight. I'll be honest. <laughs> it's an open fight. <laughs> and I, I had this with other mothers, I'd say to, you know, yeah, it is. It, you know, it was around when he first got diagnosed, there was a fight about the Libra, just getting the Libra, which some boroughs got it because of a postcode lottery and some boroughs didn't get it. And I literally went in, you know, in battle mode, as, as other mums would do. You know, you go and then go, why hasn't he got it? Why hasn't he got it? When's he going to get it? And and I was, I, I became relentless in getting it. Because the minute we got the Libra initially, you know, we had an idea of at least which direction the bloodshed was going in. So that made a difference. And then when we upgraded from that to the Dexcom, it just made an entirely new new kind of change in lifestyle where, you know, I found it sorry to say but I did find it a lot more accurate and when I find and and one of my favorite moments that I like to talk about when it comes to my son is when the Dexcom arrived and there was this rec like moment where he went mum 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 read this read this and he said I don't have to prick my finger anymore and he just had tears in his eyes and it's just he just looked at me and then he just buried his face in my chest and just hugged me because and I thought I didn't realize the everyday pricking of the finger was actually upsetting him to that degree I didn't realize that's not even you know you you worry so much about the injecting the actual injecting that you forget that actually the pricking of the fingers hurts it just hurts you know it's like and to do that 
seven, eight, nine times a day. When he, it got to a point even in the first few months where he wouldn't eat snacks at school because he just said it takes too long to wash my hands and then to dry them and then to inject, I mean, to prick my finger and then to put the machine in, the strip in. And so, and he says, and by the time I do all that, break time's over and I don't even get a snack. He goes, I'd rather not just not eat. And he got to a point where he was doing that with dinner as well. Sometimes he go, I just, I don't want to eat. And he go, no, 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 you're going to eat. No, I don't want to eat because I don't want to prick my finger. So you just you don't realize that the, the kids go through this, that they, you know, that anyone who has it goes through it, like yourself, you know, where it's just so much of an, oh, yeah, I've got to do this before I can do that. I've got to do this before I can do that. And it's just this constant, oh, I just want to eat. You know, I just yeah. want to be able to grab a packet of crisps and shove it down my gullet. That's what I want to do. <laughs> <laughs> I can relate to that sort of wearying of it yeah. you know the mundanity of the day in the day out you know yeah. even when nothing dramatic happens because those moments I think okay that was a result of xyz and that's quite rare and I will move on but the mundanity yeah. the every day of yeah. the first thing you do when you wake up is check your sugar and you can't just put as you say something in your mouth and yeah. constantly it's in the back of your head as a parent I'm sure as much as it is the person living with it but yeah, yeah it's that trudging yeah. along yeah and then so, he, he he, sorry to interrupt you. He he also had this one thing where they had um, Secret Santa. You know, his friends given him a massive like like those plus size galaxy bar or something for for Christmas. And the teacher has gone up and gone, "I'll hold on to that for you." And he goes, "Why? It's my present." And it upsets him, you know, because I, I, he went on a trip and he had a teacher constantly every half hour asking him, "Are you okay? Are you okay?" And he just went please, I'm okay. Can you just leave me alone? Because I just, you know, I can handle myself. And yes, you understand it from the teacher's point of view that they want to make sure things are okay. But there needs to be education within the school system as to when someone's got a condition like this, but they have everything that they're dealing with and managing it. Don't make them feel different because that's the thing that upsets my son more than anything else. He, do you know, the last two years, he's not wanted a birthday party. Aww. He used to love birthday parties, and he just doesn't want it. And the reason he doesn't want it, I think, is because he just thinks, I don't want that to happen where, he, where he's been to other people's birthday parties, and they've gone, are you allowed to eat the cake? Are you allowed to have that? And it's upset him. And so the last two birthdays, he's just gone, I don't want attention. I want something where there's no attention on me. I only want attention when I want to do something about this condition. That's the only time he wants it. And that's where he's come into his own in the last sort of six months. Because the last, up to that point, I didn't really talk about his condition publicly. I didn't do it for the first two years. And the reason I didn't is because I didn't have his permission because it's his condition. And so I said to him, when you are ready for me, to talk about this publicly because then I can raise the profile of the charities involved so that we can get some money to find the cure. But I said, but I will not do it unless you come to me one day and say, okay, mum, I'm in. What do we do? And that happened earlier this year where he came up to me and he went, all right, I want to help. What should we do? 
That and is that's incredible. Amazing. Yeah. I guess it's one thing to manage your understanding of the condition and, and Aiden's and for him to yeah. process it and get to grips with it. But one thing you can't really manage is other people's understanding and their yeah. reactions. Do you find that through the work you are now doing that you can educate and you can address stigma and misconception? Entirely. And I'll, I'll be honest, it's it just from a very selfish point of view, it is a kind of therapy for our family. When you feel like you're doing something that's productive and constructive then you feel like you know it makes sense as to why your kids got it has it brought you closer as a family three years on going through all that and now doing this work that is public facing is is making a difference hugely hugely I mean we were we were quite a kind of close-knit family um anyway but what has really sealed it I mean the relationship between my daughter and son is 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 much closer much tighter and it's made him grow up and it's also made her grow up I think people you know also forget the impact it has on siblings you know they they get affected by it greatly as well because you know all of a sudden the attention's on just the one child and it can build resentment it can build anxiety you know because th- then there's the trials because they they approached us six months after he was diagnosed and said would your daughter be willing to be part of a clinical trial um we're seeing you know uh, what whether because they're siblings whether she's going to get it or you know we're trying to do these trials it so it's not something that would help or benefit my child as he is right now but it would benefit future generations of children to do the clinical trials now and my daughter without hesitation went yeah I'll help so it does make it makes your children kind of go okay if the way to feeling better is knowing you can help other people then I'm gonna do it and I'm sorry I don't mean that to sound selfish I just I'm trying to explain how you know, to to keep your mental sanity, you have to find reasons, you know, for for explaining why this has happened. You know, anytime someone falls ill, you do you do kind of question why? Why me? Why not someone else? Why me? And that is something that I think it, you know it's it's important that people talk about that to say yeah you know why why was our family picked and you if you don't come up with a positive reason for it that's when you can go to a very dark place you know and that's what I had to keep at bay when he first got diagnosed because genuinely I I could even I would daydream of just jumping in my car and driving over into Europe and just disappearing somewhere that is where I went I was scared I was really, really scared and really, really felt guilty about him being ill because there's no explanation as to why it happened. So you kind of turn to yourself and go, what did I do wrong? You know, and it took me a long time to say to myself, you didn't do anything wrong. He just got unlucky. We don't know why this happens. And that's that's a lot to come to terms with as a mum. Do you feel that truly has that brought you a sense of kind of more peace with with this condition and and now you've sort of come through all that and 
and the work you're doing now, do you personally feel different from where you were back then after that diagnosis? I, I do feel different from that. What I can't, what I can't shake is sometimes a sense of sadness, just an overwhelming sadness. And it happens very rarely. It happens less and less, but it does happen. And the only people I can talk to at that point when it happens are people who have it. Mums, especially, you know, there's, again, another very dear friend of mine, Chantal, mum who has type 1, who was a mum at his original junior school, you know, she had it. And when I told her this had happened, I didn't know (laughs) for the two and a half years we were friends, I didn't know she had type 1 because it never came up. And when I told her about Aiden, she said to me, can you come over for dinner? Can you all come for dinner? And I went, oh, I don't know. I'm not in the mood. She said, no, no, no. Can you come for dinner? And I remember us going there and she literally moves her kind of shoulder over to show me the, you know, the the Libra. And I said, what's that? And she said, I have type one. She said, I've had type one since I was very young and I've got two kids and I've got a career. She goes, what are you worried about? It's all okay. You're going to be fine. And, you know, it's people like, that people who have it themselves that can explain it to me in the way my son cannot explain it to me that makes me go ah okay okay and then I can let the sadness go for a while you know what are your hopes for the future for Aiden he's shown incredible strength of character and resilience through all this Uh, my hopes for him are my my genuine hope for him is that there is a cure, genuinely, deep down. And, and deep down, you know, I'm going with my instinct and I do believe it's coming. I do believe it will be in his lifetime. I think there will be a cure in his lifetime. My immediate hope for him is that the tech gets so cool and it goes to the next level that maybe it can be you know, under the skin, or maybe it can be, you know, like an artificial pancreas that can be sewn into your body the same way you can have a transplant. You know, my, my mom, my mom had kidney failure uh, for about 10 years before she passed away. And so I've been through a long term illness with a family member. And I, I dealt with that in my 20s. And I'm kind of reliving a bit of that as well, you know, with my son. So I think I'm resilient because of that and I'm resilient now again for him but I'm more hopeful for him because at the time that my mum was ill there wasn't a lot of hope I know that there was a fight in the hospital because we were told she'd been taken off the the transplant register because she turned 60 and it could make me very angry at the time and so for him what I hope for is that yes the long term is the cure the immediate is the next bit of tech and the now is the prevention for other people getting it. If we can if we can work on those three points, which I know JDRF does beautifully, and, and Diabetes UK, I've got to say they, they are incredible as well. That's what I hope for for my son, that he, he stays positive, his mental health stays okay, and that, you know, once he gets through these hormonal times that, Apparently, you know, the hope is that, and, and, and not hope, I know that it settles down because a lot of people have said that to me, that once he gets through the hormonal period, 
actually the numbers are a lot easier to handle. Um, uh, is that correct, Jen? <laughs> I can yeah, answer I you directly. <laughs> <laughs> so please tell me that's true because you know, like you can hear it in my desperation in my voice. Absolutely, that, I think it gets know. a bit rocky. I mean, I tell you, actually, I probably can't tell you because yeah. I kind of just let it all go a bit and didn't yeah. test so much. I didn't have the tech back then. Yeah. But yeah, certainly there there is another side after that. But yeah. it's, you know, you've got so much awareness. You've gathered so much information. You're well equipped, I would say. Well, we, we went into research, like, and I would highly recommend this to other parents listening in, do the research. You know, the, the, it sounds ridiculous, but there were little things, little things that you know, we were frustrated because we were the type of parents who wanted all the knowledge thrown at us. And the NHS apparently, you know, we found out later drip fed it to us because they said too much information. Apparently, some people can't handle it and they feel overwhelmed. But we were the opposite type of parents. And I wish they'd recognize that. So we weren't given the information that pizza and pasta are the worst kind of foods and that, you know, you've got to deliver the insulin over a period of time. We weren't told little things like that. We weren't told that there are faster acting insulins and slower acting insulins. We didn't know that there was an insulin called FIASP, that if you give it, then he can eat sooner, that we were on over rapid at the time. and But we were told, you know, that we, we just weren't given as much information as would have helped the first few months. You know, if we'd been told those things, I think his first six months would have been easier if we were told, you know, it's okay if he rides high for a little bit, as opposed to, oh, he's over 10, panic, you know, what do we do? Blah. I, I, I wish that the NHS would do that. And I'm sorry, I don't, let me categorically state the NHS has been brilliant as well. And they, you know, thank God we have an NHS because they do really genuinely kind of do whatever they can do in terms of the, you know, the finances that they have and the practicalities that they have. I get that. But I think as parents who have gone through it, I think we can help them do that. We can say to them, just doing the food diary is not good enough. Explain to parents, be careful with those foods because those foods release, you know, um, things at a later time. Tell us all that information and please tell it to us, not after six months. Tell it to us in the first few weeks if we can handle it. Touched on a really interesting point there. I think it, you know, as much as a child will look to their parents for advice about this big unknown thing that you've suddenly yeah. been completely disarmed by, yeah. parents look to the traditional authority, which is the consultant, the experts. And actually, yeah. you need to become and you will become very intuitively and naturally your own experts. But it's that light bulb, again, for me, it was a decade before I realized I have to figure this out for myself and I have to have this accountability. You know, I was okay to put that in in quote marks, but it wasn't working. And you're so right as well, the uniqueness of this condition and how it affects every child, every parent, the amount of information people want to know and the bits of information that people can cope with at certain times it's all at different levels. So yeah, however, definitely. a parent or a child or anyone, an adult who's been diagnosed is dealing with this, is going through this at the moment, know that it's all okay as well. Yeah. yeah. May, may I ask, do you do you use tech to, to manage your condition? I have exactly the same as Aiden. I have oh, an okay. Omnipod and a Dexcom, but I didn't right. have any tech for 18 years. And I was wow. quite happily on injections. I didn't, yeah. you know, you don't know any different. So no. I was kind of doing my thing and and I was okay for the majority of my childhood. It was that sort of 
hormonal time sorry to (laughs) say um, (laughs) people go through but again that was also the trigger that made me want to change everything because as I said I was sick of feeling sick um every question I had you have naturally led yourself into so I've barely said anything (laughs) so thank you so much for that you've made my job very easy no worries you have touched on this but what advice would you give to someone who's maybe a parent of a child who's just been diagnosed and everything feels like a foreign language, overwhelming, confusing, and they, like you, maybe want to just run away and hide? My advice would be, um, it's okay to feel like that. Firstly, acknowledge that it's okay to feel like that. Just, Just allow yourself that luxury. Then find what it is that will trigger uh, positivity that will trigger you wanting to make the changes. Um, and in our case, it was research it, research it, read all the good stories, read all the stories about, you know, people who are doing the most amazing things. Go on to Facebook, go on to, you know, hashtag, you know, whatever it is, you know, like hashtag we're not waiting was a great one that got me inspired, you know, about dads in tech and what they're doing to look after their kids. Facebook has a lot of stuff on there that will just guide you through things. Don't be afraid to ask other parents because we are very willing to talk about it and very willing to pass on whatever knowledge we have. And please, the most important thing don't be afraid of new tech. I find that actually there are a lot of people out there who've had the condition for a very long time who are kind of like, eh, I'm dealing with it with injections. Don't be scared to look at new tech that can make your life a lot easier. Just do it because it does change it. And, and get your kids interested in the tech. Get them looking at it. Um, and also let them make a few mistakes just so they get their freedom, you know, because that's the one thing you want to molly cuddle them do it for a little while but when when you see that they're just getting angry and frustrated give them some space just give them five minutes because they need it you know it's I've seen this with my son I've seen that he gets very frustrated when we're on point you know and he's like no my body let me do it okay sorry you know I do completely agree with the sort of letting things sometimes go high because you cannot keep those blood sugars in range all the time it's just impossible and actually in a sea of a lifetime of blood sugar management you know the odd day here and there where you just it just is what it is is not going to we aim for 70 percent in range and we we've only recently been able to even go anywhere near that you know we were at the 40 percent 35 percent mark 50 percent mark for, for a very long time don't aim for perfection just aim for you know sort of near, as near to it as you can and you know we are happy if we hit anywhere near 70 percent in range it just means that we're doing our best just make sure that they are happy. The, the mental health aspect of it, I cannot tell you how important that is. That will make them happy. And when they are happy, they will listen more and they will do what you ask more and they will eat well and they'll do it. And let them have the odd treat. You know, let them just have a life. <laughs> That's all they want. They want to feel no different to any other kid in the world. They just want to be just us again. So. 
That's a beautiful note to end on. Thank you so much, Nina, for your mm. candor and your vulnerability and reliving those experiences. And I've no doubt that you've brought a lot of reassurance, not only to other parents out there, but other people with type one, whether their child, adult, just been diagnosed, you know, living with it for a long, long time. I really, really appreciate you sharing your experiences with me. That's very kind. And thank you for having your podcast, because I think, you know, having that out there is is hugely important so people don't feel isolated thank you so much i hope you enjoyed this episode of type one-on-one please remember that nothing you hear on this podcast should be taken as medical advice i'm definitely not a healthcare professional if you like what you hear hit subscribe and do leave a little review on itunes if you have time it really helps to spread the word about type 1 diabetes you can find me at miss jen greaves across all the platforms and the podcast show notes live at missjengreaves.com Thanks again to Dexcom UK and Ireland and Ipsamed My Life Diabetes Care for sponsoring this episode. And thank you so much for listening. <laughs>